Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a solo episode for you where I am going to unpack my race at the Brazos Bend 100 mile this past weekend and just reflect a little bit on how things went, uh, what I kind of gleaned from that particular event, and then touch on some recovery protocols that I like to use post 100 mile race to make sure that I'm getting myself back to where I need to be before beginning the process all over again. So hopefully, for those of you listening in who aren't all that interested in how my 100 mile race went, we'll still get some benefit from maybe learning a thing or two about bouncing back post race specifically for a hundred miler for this one. Before we get rolling with that, just a quick few announcements. If you want to check out the podcast episode ad-free audio version, you can do that by accessing the show's Patreon page. You can get there by heading over to zachbetter.com forward slash HPO. There will be a link to the show Patreon page and you can sign up over there. Also on the page are other ways to support the podcast as well as all the archived episodes. So if you want to check out some of the previous episodes, the links, the details, and some of the specifics about it before tuning in, that's a great spot to check it out. Also, if you want to help support the show non-monetarily, there is a way you can do that that's very helpful, and that is by liking, subscribing, and sharing the podcast with your friends and family members. If you have an episode or like the show in general, it goes a long ways helping me grow it. If you share it with the people that are also possibly interested in the topics that we cover here on the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Uh, Finally, the show sponsors. So if one of the show sponsors happens to have a product that you might find useful, you can let them know that you found out about them through the Human Performance Outliers podcast. All the show sponsors can be found at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. This episode sponsors include Bioptimizers, Magnesium Breakthrough, and LMNT's Electrolyte Powder. All right, let's talk a bit about magnesium. Magnesium is abundant in things like green leafy vegetables, nuts, seeds, legumes, and whole grains. Magnesium is also an antagonist of calcium in the body and is required for vitamin D synthesis and activation. As such, magnesium deficiency can inhibit the potential benefits of things like vitamin D supplementation. If your way of eating does not include many magnesium-rich foods, or you have these but still experience low levels of magnesium, you might want to consider Bioptimizer's Magnesium Breakthrough. Supplementing with magnesium can have its downsides, one of which can be a laxative effect, which could just exasperate the problem that you're trying to solve. Magnesium Breakthrough is my favorite magnesium product that I recommend, partly because of its full-spectrum magnesium supplement with seven unique forms of magnesium that your body can actually absorb. Magnesium Breakthrough has also updated their magnesium supplement include cofactors like B6 and manganese to help with the absorption of the magnesium. This now comes along with their seven unique forms of organic full-spectrum magnesium. This can help with things like sleep improvement, stress reduction, and a sense of calm. If you need to add extra magnesium into your diet, simply take two capsules before you go to bed and see what happens. 
Bioptimizers continues to offer their impressive 365-day money-back guarantee so you can test it out risk-free. If interested, let them know that HPO sent you by going to bioptimizers.com forward slash human. And don't forget to use the promo code HUMAN, that's H-U-M-A-N, for 10% off your next order. Element makes an electrolyte supplement with no sugar. Each packet is loaded with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. They come in convenient single-serve packets that make them great for bringing along for a run, hike, going to the gym, or while traveling. My go-tos are the citrus flavor and the newly restocked watermelon flavor for my long runs and post-run rehydration as well as their chocolate flavor, which I love to add in my morning coffee with a little bit of creamer. It tastes great, and it's a fun way to start the day for me. If you are hesitant or would like to try out Element first, before you purchase, they are offering a flavor sample pack with one of each of their flavors for free to anyone who uses the HPO URL. If you want to check them out and support HPO along the way, you can head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. That's drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. Links can be found in the show notes as well as at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. All right. Um, the browser spent 100 mile. For those of you who are curious about just how I prepared for it, why I prepared for it, some background and things like about why I picked that particular race and just what my thoughts were kind of going into that. I would encourage checking out the previous episode. That would be episode 323, where I outlined my training and the specifics that went into that. And just kind of some of my thoughts going into the race and what, uh, what I thought was maybe possible on the day. So the big variable for those of you who listened to that will remember was weather for this one. And that's sort of a theme in Texas in general. Uh, you can have pretty drastic differences from even one day to the next, from literally almost like ideal racing conditions to like very difficult racing conditions. So I started actually looking at the forecast a couple of weeks out from the race and quickly remembered that that was kind of a pointless effort to do when you're doing a race in Texas, because you're just not going to know probably until maybe even the day before exactly what it's going to look like out there on race day. But one theme that was sort of kind of flirting around the, the date of the race itself was there was one day that looked particularly bad. One day that looked like not ideal at all, but not the worst. And then one day that looked really, really good for this time of year. So the way that usually kind of works here in Texas is based on the humidity. So uh, the way it ended up playing out was Friday was probably the worst of the three-day window. And it was the warmest day of the three, as humid as any of the other days. Um... And it was just clear that that was the day you wanted to avoid. So thankfully that one fell on Friday versus Saturday, which was when the race occurred. Unfortunately, Sunday ended up being the great day. I think Sunday was like maybe a high in the low sixties, the humidity had broke. So it would have been pretty solid racing conditions. Saturday was a little better than Friday. Not by that much as maybe five, 10 degrees cooler, but very humid. I think it was almost hundred percent humidity. And that was really the big factor for, for that course that day. And I think it was somewhat reflected by, 
the 50 mile and hundred mile fields to some degree that the humidity was a bit of a hurdle for a lot of people to get over, um, relative to what you'd maybe see on a course like this on other years or in, um, or certainly on optimal conditions, because from a course profile standpoint, it's very fast course. It's basically a packed dirt trail, um, very flat. Um, you do six loops of uh, between 16 and 17 miles and just see what you got on that. So going into the race, I knew I was going to have to manage the humidity once we got to race day morning and knew it was going to be pretty humid and that would be an element to, to, to juggle with. But, um, I definitely still underestimated how much of a toll that was probably going to take on me. So if I could do it all over again or go back, that would be something I would probably address quite a bit differently. Not so much in training as much as in just practice on day of. So what ended up happening for me is I had a pretty good, a pretty solid first couple loops, but uh, started to overheat a little bit on the second one. And it felt like I was kind of digging myself out of that mistake pretty much the majority of the day after that. And um, one thing that sometimes happens if you start to overheat a bit in these ultra marathons is it, you can do your best to kind of cool back off. And sometimes you can, sometimes you can't, but oftentimes other problems kind of pop up along the way because the, whatever time it takes you to kind of manage that mistake can lead to some other ones. And this is probably where my biggest mistake of the day was, was I didn't manage the humidity properly with enough topical cooling early on. And that created an environment in which I was struggling to take in solid foods. So I switched basically to a uh, liquid calorie um, fueling strategy and sort of was flirting with um, probably not getting quite enough in by the end of the race because of that. And then also um, just not really staying as hydrated as I probably could in other conditions. So in hindsight, I probably would have spent a little more time managing my crew differently as well as my aid station stops differently. So the the way I had crew set up for this one was I had people out at one aid station where uh, I was going to go through twice, pretty evenly spread out throughout the loop and then see on one other occasion. So I had what I thought was pretty good crew point of contact time. In hindsight, uh, I probably would have actually spread them out to different aid stations and just had the primary focus of them be topical cooling, like giving me like uh, glasses of ice water, just a bucket or buckets, whatever you want to call it, of ice water, just a dump on my head anytime I saw it. And then aid stations that they weren't at, I would just done that myself uh, and gotten more familiar with where kind of like the ice buckets were at each individual aid station and just made that kind of like the primary focus going in. I think that would have probably led to me staying cooler early on and not getting into a situation where I was kind of fighting that back most of the day and then probably been able to stay on top of fueling and hydration a little better and then possibly felt like I had a little more legs near the end of the race. So that was probably the biggest glaring thing. Um, the other thing that was humidity related, but indirect to maybe the same amount of race performance type of stuff as the, as the overheating things was I had the worst chafing of my life during this race and I mean, in all the wrong spots too. It was, uh, it was pretty bad to the point where when I would do topical cooling, I would cringe because I knew as soon as that water would rinse down and take the salt off my skin and go over that, that chafing, it was just going to burn like crazy. So 
that was something that was, uh, it didn't deter me necessarily from doing the topical cooling because I knew that that was going to have to happen, but it was certainly something that I didn't want to be thinking about or trying to manage while trying to run as fast as I could. Um, and ultimately, uh, it was something I need to be better prepared for in the future. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've managed that stuff pretty well in the past and I do find like squirrels nut butter works really well for that, but I don't think I've ever, I haven't recently raced in humid weather like that. And I haven't ever raced in humid weather for a hundred miles like that either. So I think I was just maybe a little unprepared on that side and I needed to be a little more uh, liberal with, um, both using squirrels, nut butter, uh, more all over the place in terms of potential chafing spots versus just spot using it in areas that it would typically chafe a little bit. If I ignore, um, the other thing that sometimes, uh, I think that is a wise move to do if you do have spots that chafe more typically, or if you have like a pack or something that tends to rub a certain area is get like a more breathable, like athletic type tape and put that just it rich spots in certain spots, like maybe like on your shoulder or your waist or somewhere where, you know, a waistband or something might rub a little more aggressively and just be a little more on top of that stuff. So that's definitely something that I'll also be thinking about for future races, especially longer ones where it's humid like that is like, okay, where are all these areas that could potentially become problematic if they do start to chafe, be more liberal with uh, squirrels nut butter um, at the beginning, before the start, and then throughout the race too, like staying on top of it, applying it, even if I don't feel like I need it just to be preempted the potential of that happening. So it was another big underestimation, uh, definitely paid for it a little bit, but uh, probably the most so after the race, when I took that post-race shower, which was probably the most painful shower I've ever taken um, from a chafing standpoint anyway. So, uh, that was definitely kind of the theme was managing that humidity for the day. Uh, all things considered though, in terms of having a buildup that was, uh, got me to the starting line where I felt like it went smooth through the buildup. I didn't have to like second guess my injury. I had been coming off of with my right ankle or my left knee, that was all solid going through. So being able to go out and do a hundred mile race and kind of confirm that I wasn't just able to make it through the training risk-free, but I was also able to go out and put a hundred miles in on a day without having my ankle or my left knee at any point be problematic outside of anything else, uh, is great. And then also uh, it's Monday afternoon right now. So I'm only two days removed from the race itself, but I can say at this point in time, neither of those areas are any more problematic than their counter. So the fact that I think that I've got that all behind me and I can start to train more like I would have prior to those injuries versus going through a training plan with uh, the thought of re-aggravating that again, not necessarily being quite as impactful on my planning process is going to be a bit of a relief. Um which will be helpful, I think, going into 2023 and hopefully allow me to do a little bit more racing. So for those of you who follow this podcast or listen to me on other podcasts in the past, you may know that in typical years where I really feel like I'm kind of humming on all cylinders is when I can be doing, uh, I wouldn't say super heavy racing because that word is uh, can mean a lot of things in the alternate community all the way to like racing essentially every weekend, which I've never really 
done, but uh, I do like to do say in the neighborhood of six to maybe even eight ultra marathons in a year sometimes when I really feel like things are moving in the right direction, but making sure that only two or at very most three of those are what I would call like kind of high caliber a races where I'm going to really try to peak for them and do everything I can in training to make sure I'm hundred percent ready to give it my all on race day. And the other ones are more just, uh, really high quality training sessions. Uh, I like to be able to kind of practice that stuff. Cause I do feel like I can kind of hold back enough on those type of days where the, the, the effort of doing it is worth the experience of reminding myself, what do I do the week before a race? What do I do the night before the race? What is like, you know, how is this dinner or this breakfast going to impact how I feel at the start of the race? my fueling, my hydration strategy, just navigating aid stations, all the things that are very unique to doing a race that are very hard to replicate perfectly in training. You can get practice with that by going to an event. And even if it's like, say a 50 kilometer, uh, you can still do a lot of those things, even if you're preparing for a hundred mile race. So I think in 2023, if things keep heading in the direction that they've been, that will be my strategy kind of get back onto that. And it's just felt like it's been a long time because between my ankle issue and the pandemic, there was a lot of kind of volatility within being able to do a structure like that in a organized manner. So it'll be fun to uh, get back to that if things end up end up working out, which I presume they will, which is uh, going to be, I think, just a little more a little more productive in kind of working through some of the logistical issues and possible hurdles that like you experience on race day and being for me anyway, being better prepared uh, for that sort of stuff. Um, so ultimately I was able to win the race and run it in 13 hours and 57 minutes. So it was, uh, you know, a good long day out there, able to kind of test, test my body, figure out where some of my weaknesses are and start kind of getting back to thinking about what I want to do next and getting back into the training process. So that kind of leads me into like, the conversation or topic of recovering from these sort of things and kind of what my protocol is and why I do it the way I do. So first I like to look at it as I'm going to give myself at least two weeks after a race where it's kind of like it was a target race or a goal race. And the, after this, I'm going to be kind of building up from the beginning towards another big goal race down the road. I like to give myself minimum two weeks where I'm probably going to take that first week completely off uh, from running. If I do any running, it's going to be probably just some like random, like really short, easy run where I'm just testing things out. Like maybe maybe I'm just taking the dogs out for like a two mile run or something like that. And it's uh, just a convenient way to kind of test to see where the body is, but not really any structure or any like forced running per se. So complete like uh ability just to like kind of stay off of that running stuff for a week and let everything settle down. Typically it takes maybe about two or three days for like the muscle soreness to kind of fade away, which can be a little bit dangerous. Cause I think sometimes when people get to that point, they think, okay, my, my quads, my feet, my calves, you know, whatever happened to been the sorest after your race are no longer uh, sore when you're even walking or walking downstairs and upstairs and things like that. And they assume that that's the sign they can resume training Really, I think like there's a couple things going on there. One, I think that's probably the first thing that bounces back is some of that swelling moves through the muscle soreness dissipates, but really there's a lot of potential of lingering things. And I like to put this into kind of two categories There's the physical and there's the mental. So there's your, your muscles recovering your tendons, your ligaments and everything that's kind of involved in the impact of running, uh, getting kind of back up to speed. And, uh, 
like with overuse injuries with things like tendons i think those are things you have to be really careful with because you may not notice them being any worse for the wear uh in terms of how everything else is responding right after the race but then when you do start back up if you start back up too aggressively you can find yourself a couple weeks into that next training with those things flaring back up on or flaring up on you and then you're creating creating an issue where you no longer have uh, the timeline you were looking at before and you already kind of started the process and had you given yourself a little more time in the front, could have avoided that and actually been ahead of uh, where you ended up being because of that. So from the physical side of things, after that first week of uh, pretty much no running in most cases, uh, the second week I might do some running, but it's going to be completely unstructured. I'm not going to sit down and say like, okay, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you know, I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing. It's more just kind of feeling things out. I might go out for an easy run of say like 30 to 40 minutes and just try to feel where my body's at and confirm if anything's feeling feeling worse than anything else, or if there's anything I should be paying attention to any lingering soreness, tightness, or uh, problematic type areas. Uh, I'll likely start getting a little more uh, purposeful with things like getting back into some mobility routines and stretching routines, maybe some light strength work and things like that. And just really kind of putting my body through some small, really light tests to find out where things are feeling good or worse and start putting together where I think my starting point would likely be for what would ultimately be the start of week three. So if all those things check out after those two weeks, physically, week three is when I'm going to really start kind of putting down some structure from the running standpoint. And it's going to be very light in volume comparatively to what I would have been doing on average for that last buildup, you know, oftentimes as low as like 25% of that, because I really just want to have the structure there to get the process going and have some goals and targets on there, but give myself plenty of ramp to kind of get back into it. So like I said before, I don't put myself in a position where I get like three, four weeks out of the race itself and then notice, oh, I got back a little too aggressively now I've got some Achilles tendonitis, or now I've got some, some hamstring issues or something like that. So starting out slow when you have as short of a timeline, like two weeks is almost a necessity in my opinion, because it allows you to test things out in a little bit of a structured manner without getting too aggressive, but also puts you in a position where you're going to retain a huge portion of the fitness that you acquired in that previous block and be in a position where you can really kind of build off of it without regressing, only regressing in the amount that you really should in order to kind of recoup your strength and energies to be able to kind of begin the process again. So if that all keeps going well, then you just kind of continue on the process uh, within like the gradual volume bill, confirming your base. And then depending on what you're going to race next, you start getting specific with, you know, what kind of your focuses are going to be. For me, that's focusing on strengths and or focusing on weaknesses and least specific important stuff early in training, and then working myself to getting more specific with uh, the intensity I plan on racing, which is going to be oftentimes dictated by the distance of the race. So like if I'm training for like a hundred miler versus say like a 50 K that's going to kind to dictate that order of operations a little bit differently. Uh, the second side of that recovery thing, the recovery strategy though, is uh, the mental side of stuff. So this is one where I think people will often get a little bit uh, ahead of themselves sometimes where, like I said before, sometimes that muscle soreness goes away in a few days. It can be really exciting and motivating to get back out there and do it, especially if you had like a really good race you're excited or you put another race on the schedule. So you already have that timeline started. Uh, 
where I see a lot of problems sometimes occur is people get back to it quickly and they don't give enough thought to what exactly it is they are motivated to train for and really get down to asking themselves, am I ready to go through that process again? Because sometimes these processes can be four, five, six months in duration in terms of getting to that peak goal race that you're aiming for. So you do want to make sure you're ready to go through that entire process again. And I always try to remind myself of like, what were the hardest points during that last training block or any training block I've done in the past? And just be honest with myself, am I ready to absorb that sort of, uh, you know, mental uh, push that's going to be required to do that at a high caliber versus just kind of going through the motions or feeling like I'm less motivated and, re- and, and not looking forward to doing the work I'm going to have to do. Uh, when I finally do get to it. So those are things I try to think about. And the other thing I try to think about too, is just like, be honest with myself, what is it that I actually want to be doing in my training? So if I am a little bit tired of a specific type of training protocol or specific type of training environment, I might pivot to a different type of race profile in terms of just giving myself something kind of a little different to, to prepare for and get excited about. So that might mean if I'm coming off like a flat road or track ultra marathon, moving over to something that's got a little more climbing, descending, a little more varied train, more trail based, so that I'm not necessarily being taxed in the exact same way mentally as I was from that previous training block or multiple training blocks in some cases. And what I find is when I do that, then when I do go back to something that maybe I tactically prefer more on average, it's a lot more rewarding, a lot more exciting, a lot more fresh to get back into it. So I think those like resets of different terrains can be very useful in kind of making the sustainability of your preferred racing environment stay intact for longer periods of time throughout your your running career. The other thing you can do too is you can use that same mentality, but with race distance. Uh, because oftentimes, you know, if we're talking about things as drastic as like say 50 kilometers or 100 miles, or if we open it up to all running, you know, we've got like, you know, five kilometers, 10 kilometers, half marathons, marathons, and then you get into ultra running from five kilometers up to like multi-day type stuff. You can also pick different uh, durations of events to prepare for too. And that can also offer up a different training style or focus to some degree. Although I do think a lot of the training workouts tend to be more of these, a lot of these are valuable no matter what race you're doing, just depends on like how you're going to order them and prioritize them. Uh, it can be useful to like make something that you're maybe a little more excited to do, be a little more of the priority pace or the goal pace that you're going to be really pushing or taxing on race day. So that might help you decide what race to pick is when you ask yourself, okay, I've given myself a little bit of downtime. I'm ready to start adding the structure back to training. Now, what do I do with, uh, what do I do with that buildup or what am I going to do to make that the most fun it can be? while still kind of getting the work done that I'm trying to do. So those are some of the things I like to try to think about with, with that side of things. Um, yeah, so that's kind of my, my protocol. I'd love to hear what others have done or like to do post race. There's definitely other ways to go. Uh, I would say there's definitely times where you're going to want a longer off season, that, especially if you've been doing a lot of racing or you've been stringing together a few buildups and races in a row where you might want, you know, a full, like what I would say, like maybe a longer off season than that, or, or maybe it's not taking complete, shutting things down completely, but it could be just like switching to something that's got a little bit of different focus, like 
maybe when you, after you get a couple of weeks off, you start doing something like mountain biking or skiing or swimming or something that's going to still keep your body moving and keeping you in reasonable shape, but is going to give you a little bit of a break from both the impact and the repetition of, uh, of the running strategy or the front running type of stuff too. So all things worth considering and every situation is going to be somewhat unique. So it's worth kind of like considering all those variables, but like I said, I'd love to hear what other people are uh, kind of doing with their off-season time and getting themselves ready for whatever happens to come next. Um, before I go, a couple fun things that also kind of found their way into the Brazos Spend 100 Mile that I wasn't necessarily expecting, or to some degree was, but was still kind of cool to do and see in person was on the first lap, I think I was maybe six or so miles in, I uh, I was running along and I heard this really loud rustling and it wasn't too uncommon because throughout the morning there was like these really large birds that had been nesting up in the trees and when you'd run through you'd often like startle them and they would take off and would create a lot of commotion up in the tree leaves and branches above you but I heard this rustling kind of coming from the back left hand side of me that sounded like it was lower to the ground and it was really loud it was much louder than what I would expect like squirrels or some small like ground dwelling animal to, to make. And I, I glance over and about 10 feet in front of me, I see this large pig just shoot across the trail to the point where had I been like a couple seconds sooner, I may have actually ran right into this pig. And I saw it immediately. And then right away looked to the side and saw there was a string of like six or seven of them. They all just came through. So I had to come to a complete standstill for a while and let's, let this group of pigs go sprinting across the trail. Thankfully, they paid zero attention to me. They just kept on going and once the last one passed through, I was able to go through and, and carry on. But that was definitely something that um, I hadn't expected. Then the other thing is with the Brazil Spend 100 Mile, this is a little bit more of a calling card for this particular race, is there are a ton of alligators out on the course. And the way this course is sort of set up is you have these different sections. And some of the sections you go on these, these dirt paths that is sort of kind of like a pathway essentially between like swamp and on the swamp is where all the alligators tend to be so in the morning before the sun came up you could shine your headlamp out into the water and you could see the eyes just reflecting your light reflecting off the alligator's eyes so you knew they were out there early and then once the day picked up they'd come out onto the bank sometimes too so there was a few of them that were just like right up on the edge of the trail where at one point i came around a turn and i looked down and there was this small alligator just like right there kind of closer than I would normally get to, and let's just put it that way. But I never at one point felt like it was threatening me in any, any, any shape or form. So thankfully, um, no, no real bad alligator stories that I heard out of the event itself. So, but they're out there and you'll definitely see them. So that's kind of one of the, uh, interesting aspects of that course itself too. And something that is uh, a little bit unique about the Brazos Bend hundred mile. All right. I think that's all I have for this recap. Um, uh, if you have, people have questions about other things related to this or on the topics covered here, feel free to shoot them my way. Happy to chat about them on a different podcast or communicate with you over different channels. You can uh, shoot me any questions either about this podcast or for future Q&A topic-based episodes at hpopodcast at gmail.com or reach out to me on my social media channels. Instagram is at Zach Bitter, Twitter is at Z Bitter, and Facebook is at Z Bitter Endurance. 
Hey folks, thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll likely know I'm also a professional endurance athlete and coach. If you're looking for a little extra help with your training and programming, I do offer individualized coaching options where you can work directly with me one-on-one. I'll personalize your plan and even scale it up to email collaboration and regular consultations. You can also access either of those on their own if you just want to contact me as you're navigating your fitness journey. I also have some ready-made plans. The ready-made plans follow my coaching philosophy and they scale from five kilometers all the way up to 100 miles and come in three different levels. So whether you're a beginner, intermediate or advanced, I've got something for you there. And most recently, I also just added a strength athlete's guide to endurance program, which will help someone who is primarily a strength athlete who wants to either do an endurance event for the fun of it, bolster up their cardiovascular fitness, or just try something out, try something new. So those programs are built to be able to supplement a strength program so you won't have to give up on your gains in the gym while you're going after some running or endurance related fitness goals. You can find all those things on my website at zackbitter.com. Thanks for checking out this episode. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. 